The title of today's sermon is The Danger of Being a One Percenter and is found in the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Would you pray with me? Father, guide us in our study of your word. Apply it rightly to our lives that we might live in accordance to your will. Help us, Father, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to understand and to apply this to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last uh, Monday night, someone broke into the home of Bud and Betty Clark. They went through the front door with a crowbar as they were away visiting family. The thief then ransacked the master bedroom looking for all the riches the Clarks possess. They pulled out the drawers in the master bedroom, looked under the bed and in the closets. It's quite uncomfortable to have your home invaded by thieves. Fortunately for the Clarks, they don't keep their treasures hidden in the master bedroom. They have chosen to lay their treasures up in heaven at the master's feet. Therefore, nothing of real value was taken from them by the thieves of this world who come and enter to steal and to destroy. You see, if your possessions are not of great worth to you here in this world, then the robbers cannot take anything from you. In our text this morning, the Lord Jesus speaks on the topic of wealth. He uses a parabolic method to drive home one main point. His point concerns how believers are to view money, wealth, riches, possessions. This shouldn't really surprise us. Since in the 38 parables that Jesus told in the New Testament, 19 or half of them deal directly with the issue of wealth. You would think with all the churches in the world that have the name Baptist in their name that Jesus would have majored on the topic of baptism. But it's not so. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe that baptism is important. But there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with the topic of wealth, money, possessions. That works out to be 16 times the number of verses devoted to baptism. I also believe that the Lord's table, which we will celebrate here in a few minutes, is very important to the Christian life. But the Bible mentions money 32 times as many as it does communion. So let me ask you, based on the sheer overwhelming numbers I've presented to you, what would you say is most important to the Lord? Baptism? Communion? Or the way that you spend your monies? I believe the Lord cares deeply about our investments, about our money and how we use it, rather than the religious ceremonies that we invest so much in. Now that we've arrived in the book of Luke at chapter 16 in our study of his gospel, Jesus will use two parables to compare the way that a disciple handles his earthly riches, his money, his wealth. He will compare that against the spiritual riches that await us in the time to come. Now you'll recall from last week that Jesus shared a story about a young man that left his home to spend his inheritance in the world. After he'd squandered his money away, he suffered days of distress before he finally came to his senses and he realized that one day in his father's house was better than a thousand elsewhere. So he left the far country and he returned home to his father. Once there, though, his older brother became very angry 
that he had been welcomed back by his father. The younger brother, you see, had been showered with gifts and given a great feast. And the older brother complained that he felt now that he was being used and abused by his father. What I'd like for you to see this morning is the way that Luke juxtaposes these parables with one another. We will see that there are similarities in the parable of the prodigal son and that of the unfaithful steward. We can't help but notice as we go through them that just as the prodigal son wasted the inheritance given to him by his father, the steward wastes the property entrusted to him by the landowner. So let me remind you that each of these parables are designed to teach one specific point, and the details are somewhat irrelevant to the point that it is making. So then, as we examine this parable, let us look for that one point. It's a lesson, but what is it a lesson on? Is it a lesson on stewardship? Is it intended to remind believers that we are stewards of God? And that if he owns this world and he owns us, then all that we do with our money, our lives, and our possessions on this earth are a matter of stewardship. Is that the point? Well, the steward in the parable that we look at forgets that. He forgets who the owner really is. He begins to act as if he is the owner of the estate. He becomes a prodigal steward, if you will, who wastes his employer's wealth. This should speak to each of us as we are all one percenters compared to the rest of the world. How we handle the master's money is very important. The truth is few passages of scripture have caused so much confusion as this, pastor does, as this passage does in the book of Luke. Bible students have for the past 2,000 years been asking very important questions about this parable. Questions like, where does the parable end? After verse 7, 8, or 9. Who is the Lord in this text? Is it the Lord of the estate or is it the Lord of glory? Does Kyrios really mean master or Lord? Is a reference by Jesus to the steward as being unfaithful important? And were the steward's actions honest or dishonest? And if they were dishonest, why does Jesus commend his actions? Asking all those questions, we must ask a final question. How does this relate to us today? These questions are difficult to answer. So let's begin. Let's search for answers. In chapter 16, I've mentioned that there are two parables concerning wealth. The first parable is directed by Jesus to his disciples. The second parable is directed to the Pharisees. Let's begin by studying the parable of the unfaithful steward given to the disciples in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now, if you need to use a pew Bible, if you haven't brought a copy of your scriptures with you, I would encourage you to pick up a pew Bible that's in front of you or underneath your seat and turn to page 1043 so that you can follow along and see that what I am saying is consistent with what the Holy Scriptures say. The scene has changed from the previous chapter. As you will recall in chapter 15, at the end of it, Jesus was speaking to a large crowd, which included many, his followers, other hanger-ons, and even some of the Pharisees. But now that has changed, and he has taken the disciples aside 
and he's speaking directly to them. Notice in verse 1. Now, he was also saying to his disciples. So the audience is his disciples. There was a rich man. He begins the parable. There was a rich man who had a manager, and the manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, the first tenet of hermeneutics, a proper hermeneutic, is understanding who the audience is. Who's doing the speaking and who is listening? So if we are to understand this, we must understand that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. The Lord is directing this parable to his disciples. You can flip that screen if you would, Cindy. Uh, I mean, Cynthia. As you know, I've only known you 12 years. I mean, I don't know what's going on up here. Yeah, the Rolodex is something's wrong with it. Um, as you know, the Greek term Matthias, which is translated here as disciples, actually means learners. So the Lord is teaching his disciples. They are learners sitting at his feet. Now let's look at the details of the parable. We can try and find some of the answers that I've mentioned uh, at the beginning of my sermon as we look through this text. And we need to notice that there are two main characters in the parable. All of the action centers around these characters. First of all, there is the rich landowner who owns large swaths of land in Israel that he rents out parts of it to different sharecroppers. They pay him rent. Secondly, there is the property manager, who is not a typical household servant as we think of them. He is the estate manager. He is responsible for all of the affairs of the landowner's property. As the landowner's agent or estate manager, he manages the economic affairs not only of the farm itself and the land that is rented out, but he also watches over the landowner's children. Such a man would be comparable in some ways to a modern-day financial planner or a trustee. His task is to watch over each of the portions of the finances of the estate owner, such as the uh, incoming uh, funds and the outgoing. He's responsible for the checkbook, if you will, of the landowner. I prefer, instead of using the term manager, I prefer to use the term steward. The Greek word which is translated here in the New American Standard as manager is the word oikonomos, which identifies this man not just as a manager, but as a free man. That is, he is not a slave. So the landowner has entrusted his land and his properties and all of his monies into this man's hand. He is to take care of everything. The Greek term that's used here is also used of apostles and pastor teachers later on in the New Testament. So we see that this word is loaded. It means more than just manager. It's a, the idea of stewardship. And this man is to the, be the steward in the place of the owner on the estate. In this parable, the freeman then is able to enter into binding legal agreements, which a slave could never do. There's the important distinction that's being made. He truly manages all the affairs of the owner. Now, the reason that he does this is to give the owner the freedom to do what he wants. So he can go off and live in the Mediterranean if he wants, or he can go off to Rome and spend time there. He's got someone that's managing his estate. You'll recall from the book of Genesis that Joseph was the estate manager. He was the steward of Potiphar and oversaw all of his holdings. 
A huge part of any steward's job is to collect the rent from the sharecroppers. These sharecroppers paid, obviously, a portion of their yearly produce to the estate as rent. That made it easy for the steward to misuse the funds or to misappropriate monies for himself. In this parable, the steward is a man who follows worldly principles rather than spiritual principles. So we, the pro, we see the problem is because he's using those standards, worldly standards, he squanders money from the estate of the landowner. Now, interestingly, Luke uses the Greek word dies corpizo, which is the same word that he used of the prodigal son. You'll remember the prodigal son also squandered in English. That's the same Greek word there. His father's money. By using this word, I believe Luke is connecting these two parables together. He is juxtaposing them for his purposes. Both the son and the steward are accused of wasting the wealth that has been entrusted to them by the owner or the father. So, we have a question that we need to ask here. Is by their wasting of the monies or squandering it, are they being dishonest or simply irresponsible? There's a big difference. Now, we know that the landowner will call in the steward and ask him for an update on the financial condition of his estate. He has heard that there's some hanky-panky going on, and this brings the story to its crisis in verse 2. Look with me there. And the estate owner called the steward in, and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Remember Donald Trump? You're fired? That's what's going on here. The day of reckoning had come upon this steward. He's been accused of wrongdoing by the mismanagement of the estate's funds rather than fraud. He's not being accused of being dishonest at this point, simply of being a mismanager of the funds. The landowner asks his steward to explain the problems that he has now found within the books. And when the steward is unable to give an accurate and adequate explanation, the landowner fires him. But before he leaves, the steward is told to surrender all of the account books of the estate. Notice that the steward is not arrested, he's not jailed, and he's not whipped by the authorities for his misappropriations. Instead, he's simply dismissed for his incompetence. This certainly would have been surprising to the disciples as they listened to this story. They would have expected the worst to happen to this man. But by this, they are made aware of the great grace and mercy of the landowner. So the impression that the reader is left with as they hear this parable or read it is that the Steward has escaped his culpability for the embezzlement of the estate funds, or at least the misappropriation of them. If this was not the case, then a legal action would have been pursued against him. Instead, he is simply dismissed or fired, which the landowner allows him some leeway to make the necessary arrangements for the next uh, steward that will come in, his successor. I'm sure the steward should have felt gratitude towards the landowner. He could have pursued criminal charges against him, 
but he does not. Instead, he's just simply to finish up his work and hand over the books to the owner. He's treated with mercy and grace by the estate owner, but his position has been terminated. Now, as he looks over the books, he's thinking to himself. He realizes he's in dire straits. He reviews his options for the future. His situation really looks bleak as we read in verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I certainly am not going to shame myself by begging. As he reflects on his options, get this now, he says to himself, there's an internal conversation and dialogue going on in his head. We saw this exact same thing, as you will recall, with the prodigal son. When he came to his senses, do you remember? The steward thinks, the moment of opportunity is here to change my thinking about the way my life is going. What shall I do? Have you ever had one of those times in your life? You've come to that place where life is falling apart. You've lost your job, your wife, your home, or whatever it is, and you're thinking to yourself, i got to change, i got to do something different. So he's thinking to himself. I was thinking about this, and I thought, boy, we waste a lot of time thinking about things we can't change. What runs through our minds at times like this? Especially for this man. He's probably thinking, can I ever get another job managing an estate again? Will anyone ever hire me once more? Will people ever trust me now that I've been fired from this lucrative and good position? Truth is, most men define themselves by their work. So this man had to think deeply about his options and his choices. I think he's totally being honest with himself at this point in time. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I know I'm not. In other words, he has a physiological problem. He lacked the physical strength that would be necessary to do manual work. If he had been living in America, he might think that uh, that's not work that Americans do. That's for illegal immigrants. But the man is also honest enough with himself to admit that he has a psychological problem with this situation. He has too much pride to ever stand out on the corner of Pacific Avenue with a bowl asking a sign asking people to help them. The salient point here is this. Unlike the prodigal son who admitted his guilt and culpability to the charges that were laid against him, this man will not be forthright with himself. He lacks the very outrage that the prodigal or others who were innocent might have had against being accused of being a sinner, of mismanagement. When an accused person who is innocent is charged with a crime, they usually speak out loudly. I'm innocent. I didn't do that. Or they admit their guilt. So most Bible students, when they come to this passage, have concluded by the steward's response that he is guilty as charged. But he is being honest with himself. He's recognized that he does not have the strength to dig, nor does he have the wherewithal to beg. After all, he doesn't want to go to his wealthy friends and ask them for money. 
or to his family. And the last thing he's going to do is to sit at the temple gate and hold hat in hand looking for help. So he thinks to himself, I need to put my managerial skills to work for me. I need to come up with a plan that I can dig myself out of this hole. Just like the prodigal son, the steward comes to himself. And he chooses to act decisively. He decides to live by the first law of the world, which is take care of self at all cost. If he hadn't committed fraud before, or misdemeanors and stealing money, he was now about to. He is now ready to enter into the shady practices that so many businesses find themselves in. He knows that clever crooks are commended by the world rather than condemned, at least until they're caught. He knows that even most of the laws are written to be on the side of the crook rather than the righteous. I personally think that is because most laws are written by crooks. Just think about the most basic concept in Western law. American law considers every man innocent until proven guilty, but not the scriptures. The scriptures conclude that a man is guilty until he's declared not guilty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, this steward with pink slip in hand says to himself, I know what I will do. It's exactly compatible, comparable to what the prodigal sent when he came to his senses, but they split pathways at this point. The steward has had a change of mind, but in reverse compared to the prodigal. He says, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management position that I have, people will welcome me into their homes. That opening phrase there, I know what I shall do, is a figure of speech in the Greek. It talks about sudden insight. If a cartoonist was to write this, he would put the little bubble, you know, and there'd be a light bulb in there. The light's gone on. I know what I will do. It's called a dramatic aorist in Greek grammar. It's used to express the suddenness of the thought and the consequences that will ensue from it. He devises a, a scheme. That's going to obligate the renters, the sharecroppers who are indebted to his boss, to himself instead. He wants to make sure this scheme will ensure that there's an open door of the renters for his future. Now, he's only got a small window of opportunity here to act. He's supposed to gather up all of the books and gussy up the estate, bring things to a close, and hand the material over to the landowner. So he needs to make this happen really quick. Again, the first law of the world is self-preservation. He knows this, and he must act so that, back in the text, so that people will welcome me into their homes, since he's no longer welcome at the estate. The question is, how can he ingratiate himself to the debtors? How can he obligate them to him? Did you ever wonder why when big companies fire someone, they usher them from HR to the front door and don't even let them collect their pictures and coats? This is why. You see, this steward will act only for his benefit 
and not for the benefit of his employer. He's too ashamed to beg. He's too ashamed to beg, but he's not too ashamed to steal. So what's he yelling for? It makes me cringe to think about what people who we know and trust are capable of doing when push comes to shove. We see that here in this text. Most people in the world are just like this man because they're operating by worldly principles rather than biblical principles. In order to ensure his future, he will cook the books. This sudden inspiration of evil that comes to him, this brilliant idea, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll falsify the books. I'll change the numbers. What the sharecroppers appear to owe will be changed, and they will be indebted to me. This will have two effects. First, the debtors will be indebted to the steward rather than the landowner. Secondly, and most importantly, the renters will have to welcome them, welcome him into their homes, otherwise they can be blackmailed along with him. Now stop there and think about that for a moment. I've argued that these two parables are similar in nature, but now I'm going to argue that they are very different in nature. For when push comes to shove, the prodigal admitted his culpability in his sin, but this steward never will. Because they're operating from different mindsets. They're operating from different worldviews. The prodigal had been engaged in the study of the Bible from the time he was a child on up. But this freeman was operating by, by worldly principles. He would steal from his master and have no regrets and no remorse. He's more than willing to compound his previous mistakes by making more. He will now act with malicious malice towards his employer. In verse 5, as we read, he summoned each of the master's debtors in. And he began saying to the first, they're all lined up at the door. And he brings the first one in and he says, how much do you owe my master? And he says, I think it's somewhere about a hundred measures of oil. And he says to him, shh, 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 shh. quickly, here's the bill. Take it and scratch out 100 and write 50. I'm saving you 50% of what you owe. He puts his evil plan into action. He calls each one in one by one. And if this is going to work, this evil scheme. It must be done in secret. His plan is simple. I know what I'll do. I'll hold a fire sale on the debt that's owed to my master. Just like the prodigal who held a fire sale with his father's land and his own personal possessions and then made his way out of town, if you'll remember. Well, the scheme worked this way. Each of the sharecroppers worked their rented land of the estate, and they gave a percentage of the crop back as payment to the estate owner. He calls in the first renter, and he asks how much will he produce of olive oil, and he says, how much will you owe the master? The equivalent here is 900 gallons of olive oil, which would have been the product of about 150 olive trees. And the unfaithful steward says to the debtor, Today, I've got a deal for you. And it's only good for the next 15 minutes, my friend. 
You pay me half of what you owe, 450 gallons, and we cancel the rest. We'll call it even. Now, that's where it gets a bit sticky for some interpreters. Why would the steward do this? Or how could the steward do this? Generally, they offer three explanations. Let me share those with you quickly. Some say the steward was just actually lowering the price on his own authority to gain the favor of the sharecropper renters. Others have suggested the steward simply removed the inflated usury interest that had been added to the debt. They see this as the steward acting nobly, going back to the Mosaic law, which prohibited such usury fees. Thirdly, it's been suggested by some that the steward simply removed his own commission from the debt that the landowner, the renter owed. He was sacrificing his own monies and not of those employer to ingratiate his favor to the renter. But here's the point. The steward was acting in his role as the estate manager so that he could legally reduce the amounts owed by the sharecroppers for his own benefit. He made an offer to settle the bills for half of that which was owed, and if accepted, it was legally binding. There was nothing that the estate owner would be able to do. Now, in what is called, and if you want to know this, it's it's from Greek grammar. It's called synonymous parallelism. He drives the point home by repeating it again. Okay? Synonymous means similar. Parallelism means dual. He repeats the same story again to drive home the point, but with different details. Look with me at verse 7. The steward says to another renter, the second guy comes in, how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take out the bill. Here's the bill. Scratch it out and put 80. You know, the amounts really don't matter here. The steward is offering a discount so that the renter will be ingratiated to him. You want the details? A hundred measures is equal to about a thousand bushels of wheat, and that would be from the yield of about a hundred acres of planted wheat. So he reduces the debt in this case instead of 50% by about 20%. The point is, again, the steward continued this process with each and every one of the debtors, one after another, until every one of them had been brought to his side rather than the estate owner's. Now, when the estate owner found out, what was he going to do? These were legally binding, these contracts. And if he wanted to maintain his reputation, he wouldn't go back to the original figures. Otherwise, people wouldn't trust him anymore. Hey, he said 100. uh, His real estate agent said 100 this time, and then his real estate manager said the next time was 50. Now it's back to 100. I don't know. It's like a yo-yo up and down. I'm not going to rent from him anymore. I'm going to go down to Isaac. The landowner couldn't risk that happening. So he had to make the best of a bad situation. And when the landowner found out, what was his response? Look at the surprising reaction of the landowner in verse 8. He says, what a clever crook this guy is. And the master praised the righteous, unrighteous manager, unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. This is the first time in the text that the steward's dishonesty is even hinted at. It's when the landowner hears about this scheme. And what does he do? 
He commands the steward's shrewd actions. So one of the questions that has always come up when people try to interpret this text is, why would Jesus, why would the Lord tell a parable in which the dishonesty of a man is praised? This has befuddled people for centuries. Why is this dishonest steward commended? Is the master commending dishonesty in some way? On closer examination, though, we see that the unfaithful steward is not really being commended for his dishonest action, but for his shrewdness. He's extolled for acting in a way that prepares himself for the coming judgment which will come against him, and that is he will be fired. He is praised not for being a crook, but for being a shrewd crook who looks forward to his future. There's a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever student because he acted dishonestly. The fact is, he had taken time to think about it, to plan ahead, to secure his security in an insecure world. So Jesus is not validating this man's dishonesty in any way, but he's teaching his disciples through this parable to use material blessings for one's future. In other words, this is a good lesson based on a bad example. It's interesting that the word that's used here is shrewd in English. It comes from the Greek term phonemos, which means to act wisely or prudently. A key verse on this topic is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Maybe you know it. There Paul tells the Corinthians, he says this, Let a man, that's a believer, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required that stewards be found trustworthy. The requirement for God's steward is to be found trustworthy. We live by spiritual principles, not by worldly principles. And just a few verses later, Paul will again expound on that, saying this in verse 10, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are, get this now, you are prudent in Christ. The very same word that's used about the steward in Luke chapter 16. You are prudent in Christ. You are shrewd in Christ. You act wisely in Christ. Paul is saying that believers are to be shrewd and prudent for the sake of the gospel. Well, I thought I'd get an amen there, but... Guess none of you guys are acting shrewdly for Christ. We need to think ahead because someday each and every one of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the way that we've acted. Have you acted wisely? Have you acted prudently? Have you acted shrewdly for the cause of Christ or not? You will be asked. So in order to be ready for that judgment, we must be prudent in our choices. This man is not having his actions and choices approved by Christ. He's simply a good business model from the world. And we can learn from that, can't we? We can learn not to imitate their evil practices, but the good practices that they use. The problem was that he used the principles of the world rather than spiritual principles. And we know that the world hates Christ 
the world makes its own rules rather than uses God's rules. The law of the world is dog eat dog, where the law of Christ is to love one another. Now in the last part of verse 8, Jesus urges his disciples to learn the lesson from the sons of this age, who are more shrewd in their relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. There it is. Jesus commends the unfaithful steward for being wise and using the opportunity presented to him, just like many of the unsaved do around us today. The sons of this age are being juxtaposed against the sons of light. They are the sons of the world. The children of this world are the children of the devil. They are experts at seizing the opportunities that are available to them to cheat and to steal and to make money and to enlarge their estates. However, the sons of light are usually good at being taken advantage of. We're to be more like the sons of this age when it comes to grabbing opportunities that are presented to us to increase, to enlarge the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in a good way. We're to practice good behavior. The sons of this age only see and desire material things. They are not cognizant of spiritual things or of the coming eternity. Since the sons of light are to be living with the sons of this age, we can learn from them and practice things that will, in our view, have eternity at its center. We can make better uses of the opportunities given us to lay up treasures in heaven. We can have greater foresight in our preparation for that future and the eternal rewards that we seek and desire. All of this, if you didn't see it, presupposes, all of this presupposes a final judgment. A final judgment for the sons of this age who will be rejected outright and a welcoming home for the sons of light. We see this then in eschatological terms when words are used like this world against that world or this age against that age or the sons of this age against the sons of light. The bottom line here is that the believer should be eager and ingenious in their desire to please God and to further the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. If his disciples gave as much attention to winning souls as the lost do to their business, acumen, the church would be a growing concern. If the sons of light spent as much time and money on serving Christ as they do on their own pleasures, the church would be a growing concern. The truth is those in the church spend more money and time and energies on their pleasures, their hobbies, and their sports than they do on turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to the second portion of this sermon, There's no Seahawk game today, right? You have nowhere to go, right? Overtime. The Lord applies this specifically for his disciples in verses 9 through 13. He gives three specific examples that we can take this truth and apply it to us. He says, I say to you, who's he speaking to? His disciples. Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That filthy lucre? So that when it fails, what fails? That they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Holy cow, what does all that mean? 
The first application is simple. The disciples should use their money and their possessions to win people to Jesus Christ. The Lord uses the familiar phrase, but I say to you, he does that often. He does this to connect the previous truth to the coming truth. He says we should use our money. I say to you, use your money, your possessions, and your wealth, which are all worldly, filthy lucre, Use it for a greater cause. Use unrighteous wealth, not for the world system, but for me. You see, you can either serve Christ with your money or you can serve the world system. As stewards, we are to use unrighteous wealth for the cause of Christ. But the unfaithful steward will use it for self. We are to use all that we have to evangelize the world for the Lord. Since unrighteous wealth will last only in this lifetime, we should use what we are given by our Lord now, now, because the effects of it will reverberate down the halls of eternity. Notice the phrase, so that when it fails. What is he talking about? Is it talking about our money or our life? When it fails. Maybe you remember the uh, comedian by the name of Jack Benny. He was known to be a skinflint, especially in his comedic routines. He had one routine based on that persona in which he was accosted on the streets by a mugger. You probably remember it if you're old enough. This mugger comes and he points a gun at Benny and he says, Come on, hand it over. Give me your money or your life. Benny would pause, rub his chin, and the mugger would say, Give me your money. He said, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking my money or my life. In the same way, Jesus is asking each of us, your money or the quality of your eternal life. And many Christians are like Jack Benny, rubbing their chins and saying, I'm thinking about it, Lord. I'm thinking about it. Not much to think about. Your unrighteous wealth or the quality of your eternal life that is to come. That's what's at stake. You see, when you die, when you give up the ghost, how you spent your money will be important in the world that is to come. The time to be fully committed to Jesus Christ as his disciple is now, now, now. Not wait till the end comes and the last breath leaves your body. Then it will be too late. You will have cemented your place in the world that is to come. You will be rewarded according to your faithfulness here and now. At the moment that you enter into the eternal dwelling place, you will draw upon the deposits you have made in the bank of heaven. The money that you had here won't be of any value there. But the way that you spent your money here will be valuable there. You remember the line from the movie? It's a wonderful life. When he says to the angel, well, $8,000 comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Remember it? It's true. Money does have value here, but it doesn't have any value there. But how we spend our money here has value there. On that final day when, he, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we give an account for the details of our life, he will ask you, how will you be received? How shall I receive you? How shall I reward you is the idea. 
You see, the Bible looks at riches, wealth, money, possessions, like all the other gifts that we are given by our great God. They are a resource for us to use for his service, not for self. The unfaithful steward got it wrong. He used his master's money for himself. Whether or not he misappropriated or stole it or just blew it away on stupid decisions, it doesn't matter. He misused it. You see, all of our money, wealth, gifts are simply on loan from God. Everything we have belongs to him. The Lord has entrusted it to us only for this short time period while we live here on planet Earth. We are his oikonomos. We are his stewards over what he has given to us. We don't own it. When we waste it, we waste the master's money. We waste the master's gifts. We should use it shrewdly. We should use it to win friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make shallow relationships based on personal needs. Make relationships that are based on bringing others to the Lord. Well, that was the first application. The second application, I hope, goes a little bit quicker. That's found in verses 10 and 11 where Jesus uses again this uh, idea of synonymous parallelism. He gives the same statement in the next two verses, in 10 and 11, and he repeats it to drive home the point. I know this sounds a bit erudite, but but there are times we need to have things repeated. Sometimes the truth just escapes us. So he drives this home this biblical principle home by saying, he who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. But he who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous in much. The direct application here is to finances, to money, to possessions. Are we faithful in the nickels and dimes that were given to us when we're young? If we are, then greater amounts will be given to us to have stewardship over in the future. Be faithful in the way you use your material wealth. That's principle number two. Be faithful in that which is entrusted to you. Don't miss the point. It's not about money. It's about faithfulness. Don't miss the point. It's not about money. It's about faithfulness. What was the steward noted for? His unfaithfulness. His unrighteousness. The kicker is in verse 11 where he repeats this. He drives the point home saying the same thing again and again and again. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Nobody. It's a question of trust. Are you trustworthy with what God has given to you? When you get to heaven, when you get to the new earth, and you have little, it's because you were found to be unfaithful. But if you've been faithful in little things, you will be given much there. Entrusted by God. Let me ask you this. If you were dating someone and you found out that they were cheating on you, would you continue to date them? Would you trust them? Obviously, obviously not. We can cheat on the Lord. We can cheat on the Lord. We can go after strange things. 
Money can become our pursuit. Possessions can become our driving ambition to have more and more and more for us, not for the Lord. Are you trustworthy? Someone once said, if your pocketbook is not dedicated to the Lord, then your heart is probably not dedicated to him either. It's a question of trust. Are you trustworthy as his steward? Does the Lord trust you, especially if you've proven yourself to be unworthy in the past? Now, I want you to look back at that verse, verse 11, and notice the words true riches. Those are spoken about the world that is to come. Our rewards in the next life are directly tied tied to our stewardship in this life. True riches are the rewards that are given to us in the world to come. True riches translates to position in the kingdom, authority in the kingdom, privilege in the kingdom. Jesus says the best indicator of a man's thinking is how he fulfills the small tasks. The best proof of one's fitness for greater position is the small tasks. Are you a good steward with the gifts God has given you or not? These gifts are temporary. True riches are permanent. So the Lord poses a question for every disciple when he asks them in verse 12, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Again, this is a reference to eternal rewards. That which is another is that which belongs to God. That of the gifts that he's given us, the money that we have, the possessions that we have. Are we exercising faithfulness in our lives and in our ministries? And if you're not, you're not going to have much that will be your own in that time to come. The last of the three applications is found in verse 13, where the Lord gives us a warning. We must heed this warning. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Most lost people I run into know that one. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now, this is not related to marriage, but... Polygamy, how does that ever work? We are to be single-minded, wholly devoted to one master. That's the point here. That's the point. If a man loves money, it will drive a wedge between him and his God. We often think that money is the problem, wealth is the problem, possession is the problem, but it is not so. The problem is our attitude towards things. Paul made that clear in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he said this to Timothy. I should say 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. For the love of money, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Conversely, loving God will cause not only for us to seek his good with our money, it will become our primary aim in life. Money, wealth, and possessions in and of themselves are not the 
problem. It's our choices and the expenditures of them. That's the point that Paul is making. Despite what Pope Francis might be saying out there today. You simply cannot have divided loyalties. You must trust and be faithful to God. You cannot have divided loyalties and love money over him. No one can give full devotion to two masters at once. This is the demand of Christ to his disciples. And the question for us today, am I his fully devoted disciple or not? Well, how can we apply these things? First thing we need to understand is that money, possessions, things are a spiritual matter. And each of us is responsible to the Lord, to the way we use it. The way we give, the way we invest it, we are responsible to him for producing dividends with it. The yields that we produce should be measured in souls and spiritual fruit. We can only be producing if we are single-minded, singly-minded, devoted to him. Our goal and our life pursuits should be with him in mind. We should be asking ourselves some very basic diagnostic questions after reading this text. Questions like, what conditions are my finances in? Am I overseeing my material resources shrewdly, prudently, and faithfully? Am I being wise in my investments of not only money, but time and energy? The bottom line is this, since all that I have comes from the Lord and belongs to him, how am I managing it? Am I being faithful? Will the Lord be happy with my bookkeeping when I step into the portals of heaven and enter into his presence? Am I a faithful steward or an unfaithful manager of the gospel? The truth is the Lord has committed his treasure to us, his treasure of truth, his treasure of the gospel, and we are to guard it with our lives and invest it in others. We are to be stewards of of it in the true sense of the word and we must resist the devil because he is like a thief who comes in and will steal and rob it from the church. So then, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be on alert. We must be on guard and courageous for one day soon. One day soon we will all stand before him to give an account of our lives. And if we are found unfaithful, the Lord will not commend us and reward us. But if we are We will be given spiritual blessings, true riches and wealth beyond all that we can imagine or even think. An old southern gospel preacher by the name of Vance Havner once said this, God called us to play the game, not to keep score. If we are faithful stewards, God is keeping score and he will graciously reward us when we enter into glory. So be faithful. Be trustworthy in your opportunities for him. Be faithful in the way that you use your gifts. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've trusted us, that you've engifted us, that you've not left us as orphans or paupers. You've given us your precious word. You've given us like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. You've given us the word of God and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Father, you've given everything that we need to enjoy spiritual blessings. Help us, Father, to have a right attitude towards things. 
Help us, Father, to see what's really important. Others, help us to invest our lives in reaching the world for Christ as we are able. Help us, Father, to see people as treasures that you desire to own. Help us, Lord, invest in the right things. Father, change my heart, my life, to be an investor in spiritual things and not worldly. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.